Welcome to Love Your Library, Hampshire Library's podcast. I'm Hattie Dulac, here with my co-host Kate Price-McCarthy. Hello, Kate. Hi, Hattie. Lovely to be talking to you this beautiful spring day, even if it is just online for now. And thank you, of course, to our supporter, BorrowBox, our library app that allows you to download ebooks and audiobooks straight to your phone or tablet. All you'll need is your library membership number and PIN. At the time we're recording this, all Hampshire libraries are closed for book browsing, but we've got April the 12th marked in our diaries as the date from when we hope to be able to reopen our doors. In the meantime, of course, as well as BorrowBox, you can still use our brilliant Ready Reads Click and Collect service, where we'll select a bunch of books based on your preferences for you to pick up at the library door. You'll find all the details on our website and we'll include links in our podcast notes. So our podcast this month is inspired by our guest author, C.L. Taylor, one of this country's growing number of psychological thriller writers. Her latest book, Her Last Holiday, comes out next month. And then later in the podcast, we'll be joined by Hayley from Basingstoke Discovery Centre, who's going to give us her insight into a library-themed book recommendation. But first, let's turn to our guest author, C.L. Taylor, otherwise known as Callie, and another very popular author among borrowers from Hampshire Libraries. Her first six thrillers have all been bestsellers, but she's probably best known as the author of Sleep, one of Richard and Judy's picks from 2019, and Strangers, which came out last year. Her latest book delves into the world of self-help gurus and wellness retreats, but it's also about sisterhood and the secrets held within families. She's one of those authors who's really generous to up-and-coming writers. Her blog is filled with advice and an open and honest account of the difficulties as well as the joys of being a writer. Here she is talking about her latest book, Her Last Holiday. The interview starts with Callie explaining the idea behind the story and reading a passage from the novel. Her Last Holiday is about a woman called Fran who's trying to discover what happened to her sister after she disappeared on a wellness retreat in Gozo two years earlier. The man responsible for two deaths at the Gozo retreats, Tom Wade, is out of prison now and he started a new retreat in Wales. Uh, Fran doesn't really want to go but she's forced by her mother And when she's there, she meets a woman called Caroline. Chapter 18. Now, Fran is assaulted by a wall of noise as she opens the door to the house. Wine was provided with dinner, but from the bottles and glasses crowded on the living room table, it seems most of the guests brought their own supply. In one corner of the room, Priyanka and the two well-spoken women, whose name Fran isn't sure of, a deep in conversation, while Renata, Phoenix and Peter are sitting cross-legged on the floor like schoolchildren, playing cards on the carpet. Fran! Phoenix raises a hand in greeting. His cheeks are flushed and his eyes are shining. Where have you been? We thought you'd done a runner. I was taking a walk. In the dark? How was the view? He laughs as though it's the funniest thing anyone has ever said. Renata titters politely. Peter reaches for a new card. Want to play? Phoenix asks. We've nearly finished this round. Peter's spanking us. Maybe tomorrow. Caroline's missing from the group, but so is someone else. 
Fran mentally works her way around all the people at dinner, then pauses as she reaches the man who was sitting to her left. Dark hair, top knot, made a couple of lascivious remarks about Emily. Was it Sophie? One of the young pretty ones. What was his name? Damien. When she was younger, she'd prided herself on her ability never to forget a name. She'd zoom in on something about their appearance, voice or character and tie it to their name. It was particularly useful for remembering the names of the children in her class. Cheryl might have pink cheeks like a cherry. Liam might be a big I am. And Archie might have pronounced eyebrow arches. She could normally find something to hook a name on. But yes, Damon with the black hair and the devilish glint to his eyes. That was how she'd chosen to remember him. Thank you very much for joining me to talk about her last story. What an intriguing title it is. Now, this book is narrated by three very different women, Fran, Kate and Jenna. And it's centred on the impact that a wellness retreat, as you've described, and this self-help guru has had on their lives. And it also features two different time narratives, now and two years ago. Could you explain to us a little bit about how that works? So the, the then narrative, which is set two years ago, is all told from Jenna's point of view. So it's when she goes on the wellness retreat in Malta, and there's a bit of a mystery driving that part of the story about why she signed up and her relationship with Tom. And then in the present day, you've got Fran, Jenna's sister, going on a new retreat, this time in Wales, to try and find out what happened to her. Because Fran and her family haven't been able to get any answers, really. Jenna's disappearance was ruled a suicide two years earlier. But Fran's mother has always believed that that is not the case. So Fran's joined this retreat. But Kate, who is Tom's wife, is a very dominant figure. And she's kind of Fran's adversary. And there's there's quite an interesting kind of cat and mouse situation playing out in the present day thread with Fran trying to find out what's happening and Kate becoming very suspicious of her. I've mentioned these three different women's perspective because that's something I really enjoyed about the book, that all three of them are very nuanced characters with their own distinct flaws and strengths, some to varying degrees. And they all have quite a different perspective on the story. Did you have a clear idea about their differing personalities in the planning of the novel? Or is that something that kind of emerged through the writing? I think when you have three characters sort of narrating a novel, and particularly, you know, if they're all female or all male, it's very important that they they are easily distinguishable and they're very different from each other. So we've got Jenna, who's in her late 30s, and she's very much a people pleaser, and she's quite sensitive. But on the other hand, her older sister, Fran, she when the, when the now thread is happening, Fran is 51, and she's very no-nonsense. She's a bit socially awkward. She's a little bit prickly. She doesn't really like hugs, but she's very good at her job as a teacher. And then we've got Kate, who is the third female voice in the novel, and she's Tom's wife. But she's the driving force behind the Soul Shrink retreats. And she's very ambitious and she's very driven. And I thought it was important to 
make these women very different from each other. The goals of Fran and Kate kind of clash. Fran wants to discover the truth and Kate doesn't want her to discover the truth. So it was really important that they were both quite strong women. I was really interested in the way the book looked at what can be a very positive impact a self-help guru like Tom Wade could have on people's lives. And of course, how this kind of power can be distorted and manipulated. Was this an idea you were keen to explore? Yes. The idea for the book kind of came from the whole self-help industry, as it is something that I'm quite interested in. And in my early 20s, I think, you know, there was quite a huge boom in the whole self-help market. And, you know, you couldn't go into somebody's house without seeing various self-help books on the shelves. And it was only really more recently, I'm 47 now, that I kind of realised that a lot of these self-help gurus don't have any qualifications. They don't have any actual training and it's not regulated. So it can actually be quite dangerous. You know, you you go along to something being told that, you know, you're going to have all of these lovely treatments or you're going to do these practices. Whereas actually, you know, a lot of these things are just kind of taken from the past or, you know, like the sweat lodge experience um, in her last holiday. That's something that came from the Native Americans and it was used to become closer to nature and rid yourself of the stimulation of, of your worries and and you sweat and you get hot and you sort of you have a kind of spiritual experience. And it's kind of been lifted by these modern day self-help gurus. And actually what did happen is a, a self-help guru in America ran a wellness retreat with a sweat lodge and several people died because it was just so unregulated. It's extremely dangerous. The, the temperature in these tents gets so, so hot and there's no water and you're not allowed to leave. You have to stick it out. There's lots of pressure from everybody around you saying, you know, you must complete it. You must complete it. You'll be reborn at the end when, when you crawl through the, the tent flaps. And I just thought, wow, that's that's so dangerous. I mean, the the man in America did end up going to prison for, for the deaths of these people. And so I wanted to kind of take that basic premise of of how dangerous a wellness retreat can be, but focus more on the people behind the retreat rather than the actual experiences and also the ambition of Kate who, who will push things and push things because she's thinking of profit and success rather than actually helping people. I sense you're, you're interested in how crime, how crime affects ordinary people. In this book, for example, it, it's heartbreaking to see the impact of Jenna's disappearance on her parents' lives and on Fran's life. And I also really liked the way you looked at the effect on Kate of her husband's imprisonment, which isn't something I've really seen dealt with before. Would you say that this, the, the impact it has on people's lives is something that you like to write about? Yes, absolutely. I always say that my books are about extraordinary things happening to ordinary people. And, I, you know, I think that's the case with this book. I tried to make Kate somewhat sympathetic. I mean, in, in some ways, she's kind of the villain of the piece. And she's 
she's not always particularly likable. But when you read about her backstory, and I touch on really what it's like to be a woman in a man's world. So, you know, she tried to launch herself as a, as a bit of a, a guru while Tom was in prison, but she wasn't taken seriously because everybody just wanted to talk about her husband. And so that did make me more sympathetic to her. And she did work hard while he was in prison to, you know, to pay the bills and, and to plan for their future. I think the thing that I tried to do with, with all the female characters in the book really was to make them strong in some way. So even though, you know, there's, a, there's the result of a crime that they're all dealing with, that they are not seen as victims so much, as, as resourceful in, in some way. So another thread that, that runs through your books, I love the humour that gets threaded, <laughs> even in the most tense of scenes. Um, I loved the, the, yeah, the mentions of uh, Caroline's jumper. That was uh, that really, <laughs> uh, at a moment of tension, it's a nice bit of relief. So is that something you consciously do or you just can't resist putting a joke in? I think it really depends on the character. Some of my books are very, very tense and don't have any moments of humour. But writing Fran in this book, and also this happened when I wrote The Fear and I wrote the character of Wendy, is just something about the character that that adds the humour. I mean, Fran doesn't mean to be funny, but she's just so outspoken that what, what she said is you know, what, what she says sometimes is is quite rude or, or quite shocking. And she doesn't mean it to be. And, and I think that's where the humour comes from with Fran. But I really enjoyed writing her. And, you know, the, the comments about the jumpers did amuse me. It's just it's me having a little bit of fun with a character who I think otherwise might come across as a little bit a little bit brittle. If you can make the reader laugh at her or, or with her, it can soften up their, their feelings towards her a little. And now, of course, along with the three women who narrate the story, there's, there's a great cast of characters, both in uh, Gozo in Malta and in The Retreat in Wales. And this kind of reminded me of the, the golden era of crime fiction and writers like Agatha Christie. And so was this a, an atmosphere you were, you were keen to capture? I think it was it was very important in the book to have multiple suspicious characters. When the reader is trying to discover what happened to Jenna and who might have been responsible, their the sort of eye of suspicion is going to fall on certain people. And as a writer, you have to work quite hard to not make it too obvious. So you need a, a slightly larger cast so that there are more potentially suspicious people. And, and yes, my I was guessing completely. <laughs> so many twists and turns along the way. Uh, now, as a successful writer of psychological thrillers, I feel you've been very generous with your time and your advice to, to would-be writers who are keen to follow in your footsteps. For anyone who's not followed the blogs and articles you've shared, would you tell us a bit about how your writing career developed and perhaps a bit about your writing process now? That's very kind that you, that you think that I've been generous. I believe in being very honest about my journey as an author. From the outside, it can often seem like everything's very, very rosy, but that is 
not true for for the vast majority of authors. We all have ups and downs and setbacks and and also lovely things. But I do tend to share that on on social media because I want aspiring authors to get a real picture of what it's like. But yes, to to answer your question more directly, my sort of route to publication was I started off writing short stories. I was a bit I was too, I always wanted to write a, a novel from the age of 8. But I think I was a bit scared. I thought, you know, what if I try and I fail? So instead, I started writing short stories and I entered them into competitions and and I sent them to women's magazines. And over time, I became more successful at crafting them. And I sold some, I won some competitions and that sort of thing. But still at the back of my mind, I had the idea that I might write a novel one day. And then very sadly, a friend of uh, of mine from school died suddenly when she was 33 of a brain aneurysm. So nobody could see it coming. And um, it made me realise that you don't always have all the time in the world to follow your dreams. And that if I was going to write a novel, I shouldn't put it off anymore and, and I should just write it. So I did. And I wrote the my very first novel in three months and three weeks. And that was a romantic comedy, a supernatural romantic comedy called Heaven Can Wait. And I ended up getting a deal for that book. Um, and I wrote a second book called Home for Christmas. And then when I wrote the sort of synopsis for a potential third book, my then editor said that she didn't want any more romantic comedies. And actually that year she let about three of us go, three or four of us go, which was devastating at the time because I, you know, I thought my career as an, an author was over. And I'd, I was also a new mum. My my son was about two months old and I was on maternity leave when I discovered that I wasn't going to get another contract. But I'd had this idea for a while about on the theme of keeping a secret. And I started to write this novel about a woman whose daughter is in a coma after deliberately stepping in front of a, a bus. And the mum goes through all of her, her daughter's things to try and find out why she did it and finds her daughter's diary with an entry that says, keeping the secret is killing me. And that's all I had originally. Um, that's all I'd come up with. I didn't know what, what the secret was. But while I was um, feeding my son at night and while my son was napping in the day, I started to work on this this story and I sent it to my agent and she said it was the best thing that I'd ever written. And she got me a deal with a new publisher and The Accident, which was the start of my turn to crime, was published in 2014. And since then, I've now had, well, Her Last Holiday will be my eighth crime book. And I've also written two young adult thrillers. The Island came out in January this, this year. So last year I was working on two books during a pandemic, uh, which wasn't much fun, if I'm honest. In terms of advice for writers, I do have a, a very neglected YouTube channel, CL Taylor Author, I think it is, where I detail how I plot my books. So if anybody's interested, you, you can find out in more detail there. But basically, I use, there's a book called, and sadly, you won't have it in the library because it's self-published, but it's called Stealing Hollywood. And it's about, by Alexandra Sokolov. 
And it's about using the structure of films to craft novels. And it's what I've been using for the last, I don't know, probably the last four four books or so. And it means you have a four-act structure with various sequences, and each sequence has a climax. So it means that eight really exciting turning points happen in each book. And I kind of use that as a roadmap. As long as I know what those sequence climaxes are, it doesn't matter if I don't really know what happens the rest of the time, because I've got something to kind of plot towards. And I don't really know my characters that well until I start to write them. In the writing of the book, the characters help shape the direction that the, that, that the story is going to take. The main thing that I would say to aspiring authors is, is to be resilient and to keep trying. As I mentioned right at the beginning of this little speech, um, <laughs> you know, I've had setbacks too, and it can be very tempting to give up. But, you know, I've known so many authors who have, you know, maybe it took them five, six books to get an agent or they've had multiple pseudonyms because, you know, it hasn't worked out for them with uh, with various publishers. And you just have to keep telling the very best story that you can tell, even now. I don't sit back on my laurels. I don't want to think that my best book is behind me. I want to think that my best book is 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 ahead of me. And that's what I'm always, always striving to do is to, to write that book that everybody's talking about and that everybody is pressing into the hands of their friends because it's so good. And I think you need that kind of drive, but resilience as well to, to do well in this industry. And a modicum of talent too, obviously. <laughs> yeah, I think everyone hearing that will be inspired, whether it's writing a book that's their dream or uh, or any other ambition that we have is to not give up and not to be put off by setbacks. And wh- so were you a keen reader as a child? And dare I ask, did libraries have any impact on your reading? Oh, yes, they absolutely did. I was a huge reader. You know, I was that kind of quintessential child under the duvet under the blankets with a torch because mum had turned the light off no more reading so I just kept going and libraries feature really strongly in my memories I mean I was a an army child so I, I lived in various army camps but there were always libraries and I just remember that joy of going to pick books just having so much choice and walking from shelf to shelf and then holding them in my arms and and taking them up to the librarian and it was still when there was the little slips inside a little a little paper (laughs) sleeve and they'd pull them out and then they'd stamp them and then I really wanted to be a librarian because I just thought it was that you know it was the coolest thing to be able to take these little slips out and stamp them and and then stamp in the book to keep the record and then going back to to choose some more when I'd finished them all it was yeah it's like getting books for free as a child, I couldn't just walk into a shop and go, I'll have that one and that one and that one and that one. But you can in a library. You, you've got that kind of freedom to to select what you want and then enjoy it at home. And I've done that with, with my son. We're here in, in South Bristol. From a very early age, I, I, I took my son to the library and we'd do rhyme time 
was popular and then there was like a little craft session and then there was just you know taking a book off the shelf and reading it together and, and taking some more to go home because I really want I wanted to instill in him how important reading is and uh, he's nine now and he absolutely loves reading it's his way to wind down at bedtime and I literally I cannot keep up with his appetite for books he just burns through them and so that makes me quite proud. Oh, I'm so glad I asked you about that because I, I didn't know what your answer was going to be. And um, I was just going to say, too, that eagle-eyed listeners may spot that we've long featured uh, one of your earlier books on the front page of our Hampshire Library's website, coincidentally. Oh. Um, it happens to be that sleep is on top of a pile of books that is uh, featured that actually I'm holding, but you wouldn't know it's me because you can't see my face. So do have a look at our uh, website. Oh, lovely. We've got two massive pictures that kind of carousel <laughs> at the top and one of them features your book. Um, I, so, I uh, found out, sorry, I found out a lovely thing the other day. I got my library statement, my PLR statement, and sleep had over 30,000 borrowers <gasps> from libraries. Oh, that's I know. amazing. That How just, lovely. It was mm. so, so nice to think of that many people borrowing. Yeah, it. well, certainly in Hampshire, extremely popular and as well on uh, on our BorrowBox service, the uh, where you can download audiobooks and, and e-books, incredibly popular as well. So oh, um, you know, it's one of the reasons we wanted to interview you. And you've now written eight thrillers for adults, two for young adults, all with very different themes and ideas. Uh, I hardly dare ask, having read your blog recently, what is next? What's the setting for your next book? <laughs> Well, if you've read my blog, you'll know that I've just junked an idea after spending two and a half months on it. <laughs> um, this has not happened to me before. I've, I, I've never spent that long on an idea only for it, only to come to the realisation that it didn't work. But I think the new idea does work. I don't like saying too much when I, you know, All literally right. right before I came to speak to you, I was sitting on my bed with a with a piece of paper doing a bit of plotting and brainstorming. But I can say it, it will be different again. <laughs> I think this is the thing about my books. You never quite know what you're getting. It was great fun talking to Callie about her writing process. She's very generous, I think, to share her journey in such an open way. Okay, so on to the next section of the podcast, for which we're joined by Hayley from Basingstoke Discovery Centre. Welcome to Love Your Library, Hayley. Hello, thank you. It's lovely to be here. Ah, it's great to have us uh, to have you with us all the way from Basingstoke. I hope you've managed to find a quiet corner to chat to us away from the library. Uh, now, with the Basingstoke Discovery Centre not yet open for book browsing at the time of recording, uh, what kind of things are library staff getting up to without having your usual library visitors there to keep you busy? Oh, so we've been incredibly busy at the moment. Um, our main product that we're, we're actually doing at the moment is our Ready Read scheme, where people can still either request books or they can suggest genres and bits they like. And we put book bundles together and it's really interesting being able to look a little bit outside the box, try and find different books that people might not normally go for that might still tick the boxes. And we, we're producing loads of those at the moment. And oddly enough, this morning, we just um, started doing our testing for our rhyme time. So next week, we're hoping to um, record our live performance of rhyme time and share it on our Facebook with everyone. 
Tell me about, about rhyme time, because rhyme time is something that happens, is it normally happen every day when the library is open? So it happens, normally it used to happen three times a week, for half an hour. Mums, dads, grands, nans and granddads, everyone comes in and they sit with their little ones from bobbies, literally a couple of days old, to toddlers running around. And we sing, we dance, we just have such good fun. So many people have missed that, so we've been looking at ways to bring it back. And we've managed to find a way um, through Facebook Live that we can still give you all the songs and all the dancing and all the musical instruments. And we can, yeah, but we're in the comfort of your own home. It's quite well known, definitely uh, really good for like children's development to be singing along with nursery rhymes and stuff like that. So it's, it's a great initiative for that as well. And it's good fun for us as well. It breaks up our day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is quite a role that people perhaps wouldn't expect as working in the library team, that you have to be quite a performer and run events and, uh, and do that kind of uh, project that people wouldn't expect. Oh, indeed. The amount of things that we do when people say, where do you work? Obviously, I'm a librarian. Oh, you just deal with books. Okay, yes, but that's half the job. <laughs> I sing most days. <laughs> So you're involved with choosing uh, books of ready reads. Is it? Uh, have you got some? Had some good feedback? Oh, we've had some lovely feedback. We've got an awful lot of families here that rely on literally the library, and we're we've become their lifeline providing these books. And we've had so many nice comments, and also the ones that have gone, oh, I wouldn't have tried that normally, but because of lockdown, I've given it a go. And yeah, people have found all sorts of different genres and authors that they really like. Yeah, there's no better time than now to be discovering something new. It's the time to pause and discover things. Okay, now you've brought along a recommendation, which is the first in a series of books. Could you tell us a bit about the book? Who's it by? When did it come out? And a very difficult question for this book. What is it all about? <laughs> so the book I've chosen is The Invisible Library by um, Genevieve Cogman. And this is... Uh, this, this book means quite a lot personally to me because it was brought out in 2015. Um, my then fiancé brought it for me as a birthday present and it's become a bit of an obsession in our household. He's brought me every single one for every birthday so far. So I'm kind of a bit hoping she doesn't stop writing because it's an easy birthday present for him. <laughs> and it's such a lovely book. It's how do you describe it? I'm, I'm not quite sure. It's because it, it's like sci-fi, fantasy, detective, crime. It brings every genre and including later on in some of the stories, not giving too much away, romance. But it all is based in an alternate library. So imagine a whole world which is just a library. Every shelf, every nook and cranny is just full of books. And these books have been collected from different dimensions, different alternates. So you can get a world where it's more based on mythical creatures, a world where there's no technology at all. And these books that are common to us have maybe slight variations. These librarians um, go out and try to collect them and bring them back to their own library. And it's such good fun. It might just be worth mentioning that the entire series is available on BorrowBox, but as ebooks rather than audiobooks, so you can read them from your phone or tablet. Yeah, I, re I read it on my mobile phone. Do you want to tell us a little bit more about what you enjoy about this book in particular? So, what drew me to it was the fact that this is what I'd love my job to be to be an agent of an alternate library that goes out and tries to find all these different types of books while being in all these different worlds. Ideally, yeah, I'd love that job. <laughs> so this is the closest I'm gonna get to be able to 
be that person to read it. But I love the characters as well. The main character, Irene, she's not the typical heroine. She makes mistakes. The people she's with, they have to help her out so many times. She's reliant on them as they're reliant on her. So there's a good connection, good teamwork, and I like that. And she's partnered with a dragon and someone who represents Sherlock Holmes. I mean, what a team up. And the, of all the people that you could get, they're the two polar opposites. And it's just fascinating watching these characters um, talk with each other, go on adventures and things. And I love that aspect. Now, you've talked about its genre, and it is, yes, it's quite a crazy kind of genre. And I'm not usually a kind of fantasy, magical world kind of reader at all, with, with a few exceptions. Uh, but this is one of the great things about the podcast, is it pushes me into reading outside my comfort zone. And I enjoyed this so much more than I thought I would. Uh, so is this, for you, the kind of genre that you would normally read? Um, yes and no. My, my fallback love genre is historical fiction. I, that's one I go to for comfort and things like that. So to see this one, it kind of, it did take me out of my comfort zone. I don't read an awful lot of sci-fi. Fantasy, yeah, maybe a little bit and a little bit of crime, but this one, because it incorporates so much, it was like, oh yeah, I'll give that a good go. It really pushed the boundaries of, you know, how far can you stretch that imagination? As you say, it's almost no limits uh, on the way it carries that forward, which I think is brilliant. And especially in a time like this, being able to stretch your imagination when we're so confined to the spaces we live in and work in, it's uh, definitely a really good thing for this environment at the moment. One thing that is also a part of the book is this mix of magic and technology, a bit of a steampunk element, which I think would appeal to quite a few different audiences with, with that kind of crossover. Do you think that there are any similar, similar books, similar genres that other people might have read and like this? I, I think there are a few similarities to some of Terry Pratchett's books. Also, maybe a Doctor Who fan might like this kind of thing. If this was a Ready Reads preference, what other books or authors would you recommend for it? Oh, I would more go with some more modern classics. So maybe things probably as far back as like H.G. Wells, a little bit of Conan Doyle, even things like The Handmaid's Tale, things that are quite set with normal people but go on exceptional journeys and things like that. So I branched into so many different areas. I loved the banter between the characters and that was, yeah, um, I just thought it worked really well between the characters. Mm. And you could almost see it as episodes as they go along, so it could be televised quite easily. Mm, I'm surprised it hasn't been picked up yet because I think it would make a great kind of action film, action series, as you say. I agree. <laughs> In terms of sort of age recommendations, it, it's one of those books that can be enjoyed by quite a wide range of audiences, I would say, as, a, as what I would consider a young adult still. It reads a bit like a YA novel, but there are also adult themes and elements as well. What kind of audience age range would you pick this out for? So the first one in particular, I definitely agree, young adult novel. It's got hints of probably older subjects, but it doesn't branch into areas that you go, actually, this is probably more adult based. So I would say, yeah, young adult, maybe even towards more their early 20s. But as personally, because I've read more of the series, it follows you through. So if you read one starting like in your 20 and you kept reading them through, you're going to get to the older subjects as a more appropriate age. 
Uh, when you look at some of the reviews on websites, you can see there are some people who just don't like her writing style. But as a really fussy reader, I have to say I liked it a lot. I found it really crisp, tight, paced, and, I, and, and pretty dryly witty. Uh, and I really liked the lack of unnecessary description. Um, what did you think of her writing style? Oh, I completely agree. The areas where they needed the detail, she has it, and it's to the point, right to the key. And areas where you go, let's let your imagination just develop, see what you think. I mean, a lost novel is set in a Victorian England, and most of us have this vivid picture of Victorian England, but she develops on areas that you wouldn't normally associate, like the Zeppelins and things like that. They're the areas that need a bit more description. And I think you're right, I think she's got it down perfectly. Yeah, definitely good economy of description. I, I love really lavish descriptions generally, but I also really appreciate a good, efficient novel. And I agree with Kate, the pace of this was really up there for me. It was really exciting to see the role of this library institution in a more fantastical way. It's, it's not alien by any means to fiction across the board. You know, we recently reviewed Matt Haig's The Midnight Library, where it's a pillar there, a key institution inside the fantasy novel. What do you think it is about libraries that makes them the perfect vessel for adventure? There's so much hidden in a library. Not only can you find yourself, but you can hide so much. I mean, just from my normal job, the amount of times that I've opened a book and you find, oh, it's a bookmark, or on the very odd occasion you find, like, notes, and yes, there can be shopping lists, but sometimes you get ones like, I love this book, can we meet up, or things like that, and you just never quite know what you're going to find, and it's no wonder so many books are set in libraries, because imagine finding, okay, maybe not quite so dramatic, but like a body hidden away, or a secret, or a treasure map, something that really sparks your imagination. And libraries are just an amazing place where you've got all this fountain of knowledge, all these people that work there, just really start an amazing adventure. Um, there's a few areas where I thought it could have done with a slightly firmer editing hand. Like I kind of had to pause and reread a few sentences because something just seemed a bit awkward and difficult to read. As an example, really early on in chapter two, where it's at a time when you're trying to get your head around the characters in this extraordinary complex situation. There was a sentence which read, it was a pity that nobody could control the re-entry point of forced passages back to the library from alternate worlds. And my head just kind of went, what on earth does that even mean? Having said that, fair play to the writer, she does manage to convey one of the most complex premises I've ever come across in fiction without me losing track about what was going on. It's just occasionally there's a sentence and I think, hmm, that could have been rephrased slightly better. And that I think is down to needing a firmer hand from an editor. But I was also gonna say that I really liked, uh, I liked the nice reversal of the older man, younger female assistant that you often get in, in books and television. So it was really nice to see this, maybe slightly the other way around. Uh, did you think the relationship between Irene and Kai uh, worked well? Oh, definitely. I love those two together. And when Val got introduced as well, the mixed, they're not supposed to work. The three polar characters, and they are not supposed to click, and they just do. But I love the little confrontations, the little niggles of doubt that um, she seems to have and how quick it all just turns around and how Kai seems to suggest different things and she's trying very hard to remember that she's the teacher, she's the mentor and you're the student and she just can't quite keep on top of that. And I love their connection. 
We've been talking about The Invisible Library by Genevieve Cogman. All seven titles in the Invisible Library series are available to download as an ebook from Borrowbox, including the last in the series, The Dark Archive, which came out in November last year. Thanks for that suggestion, Hayley. It's always great to be introduced to a new series of books that I've not come across before. And we also very much look forward to seeing you soon in Basingstoke when we can come and visit you. Yes, hopefully it won't be too much longer. As well as getting ourselves ready to reopen as soon as we can, Hampshire Libraries will also be shining a light on a few book-themed initiatives in March. We've just had World Book Day when you might have seen library staff on our Facebook pages dressed up as their favourite book characters. And that day also marked the start of the 200 million minute reading challenge, which runs throughout the month. If you want to take part, take a look at the website. We'll include a link in our show notes. The challenge calls on everyone to log their reading time throughout the month to reach the target of 200 million minutes. It's all about celebrating the love of reading, which we're all about at Hampshire Libraries. It's also Women's History Month at the moment and International Women's Day on the 8th of March. To mark the occasion, you'll find a specially curated collection of ebooks and, and audiobooks on our Borrowbox shelves. Well, that sounds like the perfect excuse to re-listen to our interview with Caroline Criado Perez from last year when she talked about her groundbreaking book, Invisible Women. And it's also a good time to take a look at our author of the month for March, Virginia Woolf, who's a particular favourite in my household. My daughter is a massive fan of her writing. There's a fantastic collection of her work on our Borrowbox shelves, so do take a look. And if you're new to the podcast, you might not know this, but every month we do a roundup of some of the new and limited titles on Borrowbox. And this month is no exception. These are audiobooks and ebooks that you don't have to wait for, even if loads of other people have borrowed them. You'll find the full list on our podcast notes, but we'll just mention a few here. Now, one of our new Unlimited titles is from one of my all-time favourite authors, Alan Hollinghurst. It's The Sparshalt Affair, which came out four years ago, and it's one I haven't read yet, so I'm going to have to download that one straight away. Line of Beauty is probably his best-known book, and, and that's the one that he won the Booker Prize with. It's probably in my top five favourite books of all time. And if you're looking for something funny, there's also Bob Mortimer and Paul Whitehouse's book, Gone Fishing. So yeah, this is based on their TV series, which I've really enjoyed. And I have heard, I haven't listened to the audiobook yet, but I've heard the audiobook is, is a bit more than you'd normally get. It's not the normal kind of staid narration of the, of the text on the page. It is a bit more like a chat with Paul and Bob. And so if you're a fan of podcasts, this is absolutely going to be up your street. Um, and we also got Matt Haig's The Last Family in England, which was his first novel after his very successful self-help book, How to Stay Alive. Uh, now, this book is all about a family in crisis, but from the unusual perspective of Prince, their black Labrador, who's determined to save them all. As always, one of these featured titles for March is also our virtual book club choice. You'll find links to this online reading group, which we call Digital Readers, on the Hampshire Library's Facebook page. This month, it's TM Logan's thriller, 29 Seconds, which tells the story of what happens when a woman's act of bravery puts a powerful and dangerous man in her debt. So download the book and join the conversation through our Hampshire Library's Facebook group. And if you're a fan of TM Logan, we'll be featuring an interview with him about his new thriller, Trust Me, in a future edition of the podcast. So that's it for our pick of Borrow Box for the month. We'll include the full list of unlimited titles on our show notes. And thanks once again to Borrowbox for supporting this podcast. Don't forget, you can use Borrowbox to download audiobooks and ebooks for free with Hampshire Libraries. 
That's it for this edition of the podcast. Thanks for joining us. I'm Kate Price-McCarthy. And I'm Hattie Dulac.